Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week we're reading the story of Israel's covenant renewal ceremony as told in Joshua 24, 1-18. We wrestle with this difficult text, which comes at the conclusion of the conquest of the land after the Israelites have annihilated the Canaanites from their midst. On the one hand, we talk about the problematics of having a conquest narrative at the core of the biblical tradition, and we wrestle with the violence such a text can justify, and has justified, throughout history. On the other hand, we acknowledge that the core of this text is about God's providence, giving land and security to a people who had themselves been abused, enslaved, and murdered at the hands of the Egyptians for more than 400 years. In the end, we reflect on the importance of remembering our stories and of retelling them, acknowledging the painful realities of the past while claiming the promises of God for a better future. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I'm good. Good. I'm glad to hear it. How are you? I'm good. I've been doing this thing. So I live like 35 minutes from my job. And so I started doing this thing where I listen to and like do Spanish lessons on my way to work every day. <laughs> so now every time I get in the car, I want to start speaking Spanish, but I don't really speak Spanish very well. And so like I can talk about like, you know, that there's a parking lot in front of my building or like, <laughs> where is the file that I need for the meeting this afternoon? So wait, when you get in the car by yourself, you want yeah, to yeah. speak Spanish to yourself? To myself. Or when you I get can. in the car with someone else, I speak Spanish to other people too. You can speak bad Spanish to yourself whenever you want to. Yeah. Mostly I have my little app going, and so I talk Spanish to my app. and then, But then you know how it's like a Pavlovian dog response. <laughs> so then like whenever I get in the car and at any other time, like now being in the car like engages like random Spanish speaking mode. That's pretty powerful. I'm glad to know you can be manipulated so easily, Bobby. I'm very manipulable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how to use this information, but I will find a way. Yeah. Hmm. Ooh, what we should we try want that. From Bobby. Yeah. Hmm. You should try a Pavlovian experiment on me throughout this season of Bible. Throughout Worm. the whole season. Yeah. It's going to be hard to do that remotely, though. It is. It, yeah, it's true. And only once a week, but we can happen. try. This might be one of the more random introductions to the Bible Worm episode that we have. I don't know why you would say that. This yeah, we have lots of random. Absolutely lead us right into the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. Hmm. Amy, I, I struggle with this text so very, very much. We're reading Joshua 24 today, which is the renewal of the covenant, which comes at the end of the book of Joshua. And I don't know, it's just very conquesty. Mm. <laughs> like jo- Joshua as a book is very yeah, conquesty. It is. Yes. yes. And we had a little bit of conquest-ish stuff back in Genesis chapter 12 
where it was like, I'm sending you to the land of Canaan where the Canaanites were then living or whatever. And we were like, but look, he's sending Abraham to live amongst the Canaanites, which I think was actually a nice interpretation of that text. Mm-hmm. But then now that is no longer the relationship yeah. with the Canaanites. And so yes. I struggle with it so very, very much. So you're going you're gonna to solve all of those <laughs> conundra yeah, for right. me today. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I can just wave my magic wand. Yeah. Make them go away. Yeah, no, I mean, Joshua and a lot of Deuteronomy, a lot of these texts in the Deuteronomic history, Deuteronomistic, Deuteronomistic, right? I miss yeah. some syllables. Deuteronomistic history. They have as their like, like starting point in their belief system that the covenant has two parts. One of them is progeny and one of them is this land. Right. And- and and that just is and and it comes with with all the violence of conquest and all the displacement of conquest and and we read it now like seeing how how the whole motif of conquest has played out in the world we read it with no small amount of horror yeah and it is absolutely interlaced into the story like there's i don't think there's any way that you can dispense with it <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. or pretend that it's not there. And so, yeah, the question is when, when do we need to raise it up and actively wrestle? When do we say, yes, this is something in the book that we wrestle with and it's okay to talk about something else that's in the book. Right. That I feel like that's the, that's the challenge for us. Well, that's going to be the nature of our conversation today. I think and I, I look forward to that. It, I like, you've kind of got me, I'm interested in that sort of question about, when do we need to talk about what's here and what can we say positively from this text aside from the problematics of this text and how can this text help us think about our own past and our own present? Like those are really interesting questions that I, I think are all generated out of this out of this text. Before we get there though, we have moved quite a ways uh, yeah. from our last conversation. We, uh, two weeks ago, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea to escape from the Egyptians. And then last week they were on Sinai and received the 10 commandments. Mm-hmm. And now we are all the way in Joshua 24 at the renewal of that covenant, which they just got last week in our podcast land, but quite a long time ago in the biblical narrative. How would you fill in that gap between last week and this week in, in ways that are podcast appropriate? <laughs> now I want to think about what's <laughs> podcast inappropriate. I mean— Okay, so between last time and this time, the Israelites have spent a lot of time wandering in the desert, 40 years to be precise. And during, you know, we can talk about the crossing of the sea as the birth of the people, but I also think it's those years of complaining and trying to overpower each other and trying to figure out who should really be in charge and trying to figure out what fairness looks like in this context and trying to figure out how to be faithful even while you're uncomfortable and how to figure, like it's really, people don't necessarily like the stories and numbers and maybe that's why we're skipping all of them, but (laughs) they are, it's really like the day-to-day work of living in community, I think so much of it is in numbers. So we have that in numbers. And then Deuteronomy is sort of like Moses's last speech. It's a very long speech (laughs) (laughs) to the Israelites as they're about to cross over into the land of Canaan, which is the land that the text tells us has been promised to them. They're about to start this conquest. 
And so Moses goes through, reminds them of some points of history, gives them a bunch of laws that are related to the ones in the Torah. We're not going to get into that because that's not our text for today. And then at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. Leadership has been passed on to Joshua. And um, it is Joshua who is going to lead the Israelites as they move into their next chapter. The other thing I should have said, so I'll say it now, is that all of the, because of some of the uh, events that happened in the desert, (laughs) all of the generation that was, that crossed the sea dies in the desert. Right. They do not get to cross. It is a new, it is a new people who cross over into the land. And so I always think it's really interesting reading these recountings of history, trying to remember what exactly is the connection of the humans who are hearing these words from Joshua and the stories that he's reminding them of. I think that last part point is really important, and it sort of establishes this ongoing tradition of retelling the story to the next generations and the next generations recommitting to the covenant, and that happens all throughout history. And so in that sense, we are always retelling the story and recommitting to the story. Mm. And I think that raises some interesting possibilities about how we retell the story and which parts we choose to tell and mm-hmm. how we're going to relate it. And this Deuteronomy and then here at the end of Joshua's life, as we'll see, is another recommitment to the covenant that, w- that we'll read today in this ongoing process of sort of restoring the tradition or something mm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything we should say about the book of Joshua itself? I mean, I think the the most important thing to say maybe is that this is this is the book where they are this is the book of the conquest of the land. Like it's it's moving through the land and taking over <laughs> and taking over um in some battles that are violent, in some battles that seem to involve only blowing the trumpet, in some battles that I mean it's, it's stories of stories of conquest and so it is in a in a very real way fulfillment of the covenant and also it is stories of conquering peoples i don't know i'm sure what what else do we need to say about that i mean this text that we're reading today is kind of a retrospective about how yeah. they've gotten to Joshua 24 and so i think some of that sort of gets pulled in 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 the speech that we're going to read. So maybe that's enough for now, and then we can come back and, and talk a little bit as, as we go. Yeah. Does he all right? Yeah, yep, yep. Let's do it. So the narrative lectionary text for today gives you some options. Joshua 24, 1 to 15 is the primary text, and then continuing on 16 to 27 is a suggested continuation of the text. Us being who we are, we have decided to read the whole text. It's kind of a miracle we didn't add <laughs> like other parts of it <laughs> as well. At least I don't think, sometimes I add things and forget that we did it. But anyway, I, I think this is what we'll do today. So the setting then is Joshua nearing the end of his life now is now that the the fighting, the conquest is over, he is uh, inviting the people to recommit themselves in yet another new recommitment to the covenant. So I'm picking up in verse one and I'm reading the Common English Bible. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders of Israel, its leaders, judges, and officers. They presented themselves before God. Then Joshua said to the entire people, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors lived on the other side of the Euphrates. They served other gods. Among them was Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor. I took Abraham, your ancestor, from the other side of the Euphrates. I led him around through the whole of Canaan. I added to his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Mount Seir to Esau to take over. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt with what I did to them. After that, I brought you out. I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. The Egyptians chased your ancestors with chariots and horses to the Reed Sea. Then they cried for help to the Lord. So he set darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea down on them, and it covered them. With your own eyes, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. You lived in the desert for a long time. So I want to start with just a general question. Where we're headed is to a renewal of the covenant, but Joshua starts by taking them all the way back. I mean, I guess it's Joshua saying God is taking them all the way back yeah. to the like pre-times, all the way back before Abraham, before Genesis 12. Like we start out sort of like at the end of Genesis 11, going all the way, all the way back to when they still lived in Mesopotamia. I don't know. I, there's just something about that it just seems like you maybe you could have gotten there a little like a little quicker or without having to go all the way back why do you think Joshua or God in Joshua's telling takes them all the way back to the Euphrates that is such a good question and i think in it is this sort or is part of this broader question that you raised in the introduction of you know we've had 500 pages telling this story and now yeah. we have like one page <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. that is supposedly being told from God's perspective. This right. is what God wants you to think about the history. Right. The, I don't have a good answer to your question. I feel like I start every answer that way. But <laughs> And then they turn out to be amazing. No. I, what I notice in that part of the story is that when we read the story, we talk about Abraham's like faithful willingness to do this thing. And I don't know, we think a lot about Abraham. Right. And this story doesn't, is really like Abraham's faith isn't the point. God is the only actor in this story. God sort of plucks Abraham out of this environment that he's in and sets him on a different path. Yeah. I don't know if that gets at all to the question of, why do we have to start all the way back there? Yeah. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Does that get to that question at all? It does. Like, I mean, the way that the way that he tells Abraham's story is particularly interesting. And I, I want to come back to that in just a minute. But yeah, I think that there's something here about if you're gonna tell the story, like you've got to go all the way back in telling the story. And I, I mean, I know that there are things obviously that are left out here that, that happen in between all of these things, but there's a sense in which you've got to start at the beginning. If you really want to understand where we've come from, you can't just start in the recent past and to say like, hey, I brought you across the Jordan and you, you know, right. conquested the land. You've got to start, you've got to have your memory. Memory is, memory is important. And if you have forgotten, let us not forget. Yeah. And so going back to highlight, in order to understand what is happening in the present, you have to re-engage the memory, the long memory of the people that goes all the way, all the way back. Do you think there's something in there that's like, you are not inherently different 
from other peoples. Like mm. your ancestors used to do the same things that these other peoples are doing. And it is, you know, that they are, they are set apart only because of an act of God. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Amy. I, I like that interpretation. And, you know, I'm assuming that you're reading that verse in verse 2 where Abraham, your ancestors lived on the other side mm-hmm. of the Euphrates and they served other gods. Yeah. Among them, Terah was uh, the father of Abram and Nahor. Yeah, and so you, y'all you used to be polytheists just like the other polytheists. And the reason that you're different is because I came and, and took you out. Mm-hmm. I like that. So then it's not our or who, whoever's. It's, it's not the people's. It's not the people are special because they did something. It's the people are right. special because God chose them to do something special for them. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. I know that line about Terah and Abram and Nahor. It's a little vague about exactly who was a polytheist, but if you hold your head just right, it says Abram, Abraham was a polytheist. And I know that that generated a lot of really interesting and quite famous Jewish midrashim about Abraham, the idol smasher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's this story that his father, Terah, not, not, in the story, which actually I don't know that Josh, I don't know what Joshua would think about this story. In the story, Abraham seems to know from a young age that these idols that his father creates are not what his father thinks they are. Yeah. And so he's willing to destroy them. So that would sort of go against this suggestion I just made that your ancestors are just like everybody else. Yeah. And you're not that special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've always read, I mean, I don't know how you would process this, but I've read those Midrashim as, like, the, if you don't read it that way, then the question is, like, why did God pick Abraham? Yes. And so the, the rabbis, I think, were concerned about that and said, well, this is why God picked Abraham. Yeah. Because he was not a polytheist in a polytheistic environment. But I really, like, my own self, I like the other reading that you are suggesting that maybe Abraham, in fact, was a polytheist at one point, and God chose him for no reason of his, like, for no reason concerning Abraham himself, but God chose Abraham for God's own reasons. I think that's a really generative way of reading it. Mm. So this text divides kind of into like at this part of this text anyway, into the like promises to Abraham, promises to Moses. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious when you read this, the way the Abraham story is told, he came from the Euphrates to the land. He had Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, and then they went down to Egypt. Like, that's an interesting way. Like, there's a lot one could tell of the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob story that's not here. Do you have any thoughts about the importance of the way it is told, Focused, I guess, focused on lineage? I think I might be, I might be like, beating this drum too hard. But I think that I, I'm seeing the frame of, again, the, like, two-part covenant so clearly. And so, mm. um, like, Pretty immediately, like we know in Genesis, it's not actually immediate. There is some dramatic tension to the the promise of offspring. But in this story, that happens pretty quickly. What has just happened in this story is they've completed the second part of it. And so I feel like that that the land part of it. Right. So, you know, in Abraham gets his offspring, and then Esau, who's not ultimately in this covenanted path. He gets some land, Mm -hmm. but like the land is delayed further for the descendants of Jacob. So we're going to, you know, tell the 
the Egypt part. I feel like it's building up the dramatic tension of, you know, when when the covenant will be completed. I think that makes sense. And it's interesting that it's like, you know, I showed you the land of Canaan. So you're like, yeah, the land. And then I gave you progeny, like your land and progeny. But then they went down to Egypt. <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah. like, <laughs> we were so close. And then there's this whole, like, now there's 480 years in between or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah, that additional point. Yeah. I, I brought you through Canaan and then I brought you back out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting that it's not, that it doesn't say God brought them down to Egypt. It just says they went down to Egypt, mm. which I don't know that there's anything there, but it's sort of, it almost sounds like they did that of their own accord or something. And then that God is had to so interesting because back. before that, it's so much God is the actor. I took yeah, yeah, your absolutely. father, Abraham. Yeah, absolutely. And then they went to Egypt. Yeah. That's such an interesting point. I had not noticed that. There's a whole thing one could open up there, but I'm not sure that's really the point of this text. Yeah. So in any case, they, they end up in Egypt. This section on Egypt, like the, well, the thing that caught my attention was God says, I brought you out in verse 5. And then mm. in verse 6, I brought your ancestors out. Mm-hmm. And then uh, with your own eyes, you saw what I did to the Egyptians in verse 7. Mm-hmm. Sort of moving back and forth between, I mean, you were saying earlier that the whole generation that actually came out of Egypt has subsequently died in the wilderness. What do you do with that movement back and forth between you saw it and your ancestors saw it? I did it for you. I did it for them. I love it. That's what I do with it. I love it. <laughs> yes. Say more about that. <laughs> no, I mean, I just feel like it's, there's such a strong call in the in the text and the following traditions to try to inhabit the stories of our ancestors. And, and it's almost like, like first the text assumes that you know that and you can do it. And then it sort of clarifies, like in case you're a little slow, like, okay, not you, your ancestors. But like, you know, saying you is shorthand for your ancestors right. almost. Like it, it just adds a little bit of, um, I was going to say clarity, but it's not clarity. It totally muddies the field. That like there's, I imagine this sort of like shared memory pool out in the cosmos. And it's like you're tapping into this memory pool and and need to know how to do that. Like you need to know where it is and how to get into it. Um, But it's not, yeah, it's not the text. Just in case you're being literal, the text is like, well, okay, fine. Not you, but like. (laughs) <laughs> but you, not you, yeah. but you. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think that's right, Amy. I think that's so important that this, like when we tell stories in this tradition, we're not merely telling stories. We are connecting ourselves to the story and being part of the story. Like this happened to you, even though we know you weren't actually there. And so when you tell the story in subsequent generations, when you tell it to your children and to your children's children, like then th- they were also there. And so that- yeah crossing of the Red Sea and all of these other things passed down. What is that story that you tell about the understanding that all Jews in all times were, was it at Sinai? Is that Yeah, that all that? Jewish souls were at Sinai, whether, you know, born Jewish or converted to Judaism later in their lives. At any generation, the idea is that your soul was there at Sinai, but you have to tap in, you have to like activate that memory in some way. And yeah. and in the Haggadah too, we're told that like every Jew should t- 
tell this story as though they themselves had come out of Egypt. Like we are, this is not supposed to be a story of something that happened to someone else. This is a story of something that happened to you, but that takes a little more imaginative power. Yeah. I feel like we live in a culture that has such short memories and we try to forget about things and we, Mm. you know, we try to pretend like things that happened in the recent past really didn't happen. Like, I mean, even like the civil rights movement, like we try to not talk about, like we'll talk about the civil rights movement, but not why there was a need for the civil rights movement. And Mm -hmm. it's like, we don't want to reflect on the past or at least reflect authentically on the past. And, And I love this tradition in this text and also what you're talking about in your tradition that. No, exactly. The point is you've got to remember, you've got to retell, you've got to inhabit, you've got to process through it, and you've got to connect to it. Otherwise, you don't know who you are, and you don't know what you're doing, and you Mm -hmm. don't know what God has done for you. I I think that's such a lovely idea. Yeah, I love that. We just talked about this text of the crossing of the Red Sea Sea, a couple of weeks ago. Is there anything about the way that it's told here that you think we need to call attention to in particular? I'll tell you the things that stood out to me. This phrase, God put darkness between you and the Egyptians yeah, and then brought the sea upon them and it covered them. I don't know. It just, it seems, it's not that that didn't happen in the other story, but it's not about like, I mean, where's the like God parted the sea and it stood up like a wall. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I don't know quite what to make of the, the way that it tells the story, but it, it seems, it feels different. It feels, I don't know. I don't have a good word for this, Bobby. Does it feel different to you? I'm not sure that it did feel different until you said that, but then now you've got me reflecting on it differently. And the emphasis that I'm seeing now is the God's capacity to destroy the threat, mm-hmm. which is an important part of that story. But you're exactly right that the sort of like the the birthing of the people that you so beautifully talked about when we read that text is not really the point here. It's you yeah. saw what I did to the Egyptians, right? Like Yes. Not what I did for you. That's like, right. Yeah. You saw what I can do. I don't quite know what to do with that, but it, it seems like an important inflection in the telling. I mean, there is in Deuteronomy, which is that, I guess it's, yeah, it's a book before this. There's a lot of exhortation to have faith and, you know, follow the laws and the Torah. And part of it is don't be afraid of earthly forces. Like there are a lot of things in the world that are going to look very, very scary. And if you are too afraid to move forward because of those things, it's going to be a deal breaker. Mm. And so in the beginning of Deuteronomy 2, when it retells the story to sort of give the the setting for that book, there's a lot of emphasis on the times that it worked out just fine. Like there was there was a people more powerful than you. And in this case, a people who were, like they were coming, they were the aggressors. They were coming after you. Um, and you have to remember that God took care of it. Like, you have to believe that God will take care of the earthly threats 
so that you can do this thing that God is asking you to do. So I think it, I don't know that I like like that way of telling the Exodus yeah. story, <laughs> but I can see how it's, I can see how it fits in, you know, in this story that's going to get increasingly conquesty. Yeah. That idea that, that God can take care of the threats is really central. Yeah. The last thing that's in this little section is just that one sentence, you lived in the desert for a long time. Yeah. I just, I don't know quite like that just seems like such a, <laughs> like there's a lot that happens in the desert. Yeah. And then you just get that one little line. You know, that in my translation, that phrase is a dependent clause that's linked to the next the next sentence. So in my translation, it's after you had lived a long time in the wilderness, I brought you to the land of the Amorites. Oh, I like that better. Yours, in some ways I liked yours because it was so sort of like, it's it's so bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then you lived in the desert for a while. Yeah. Yeah. In the Masoretic versification, there's a soft pasuk or whatever it is, the, the hard stop at the after the many days. So it's really in the Masoretic markings, it's not connected directly to what comes after. But anyway, I just, I just it made me laugh a little bit because that, you lived in the desert for a long time. Like covers up a whole lot of things. I know. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. Today, I want to tell you about a group called the Bible Worm Collaborative, which you can join through our Patreon. The Bible Worm Collaborative is a group of Bible Worm listeners who meet together to collaborate on our interpretations of the biblical text. Once a month, we meet on Zoom to discuss the narrative lectionary text for the following month. Amy and I often draw on the questions and insights of the collaborative, giving you a chance to shape the direction of the podcast. Starting this month, Bible Worm Collaborative members also have access to a new, exclusive Discord group where you can discuss the text with other collaborative members, offering insights, asking questions, and sharing resources. Amy and I check in regularly to offer our thoughts as well. Collaborative members also receive early access to episodes, a terrific Bible Worm sticker, and the satisfaction of supporting a good cause. You can become a member of the Bible Worm Collaborative by joining our Patreon for just $14 a month. See patreon.com slash Podcast for details. And now, back to this week's episode. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll pick up then in verse 8. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They attacked you, but I gave them into your power and you took over their land. I wiped them out before you. Then Moab's king Balak, Zippor's son, set out to attack Israel. He summoned Balaam, Baor's son, to accurse you. But I wasn't willing to listen to Balaam, so he actually blessed you. I rescued you from his power. Then you crossed over the Jordan. You came to Jericho and the citizens of Jericho attacked you. They were Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them into your power. I sent the hornet before you. It drove them out before you and did the same to the two kings of the Amorites. It wasn't your sword or bow that did this. I gave you land on which you hadn't toiled and cities that you hadn't built. You settled in them and are enjoying produce from vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant. Mm. So, Amy, this part of the text is talking about I mean, in general, sort of the way the Israelites came to be in the land, but it's talking about some fairly specific stories. What would you say about the Amorites and the Moabites and those the, those first two groups 
around the eastern side of the Jordan, kind of in the mod- in modern day Jordan. What would you say about those two stories of the Amorites and the uh, Balaam and the Moabite king Balak? I think the most important thing to say about this is that the word, if you try to spell the word Emory in Hebrew, <laughs> it's the same as the word Amorite yeah. in Hebrew. So the Emory Hillel had shirts made that said Emory in Hebrew, as many college Hillels do. Yeah. But then all the nerds in our department could laugh at them because their shirt said Amorite. Yeah, and isn't it true that like in a lot of rabbinic texts, like the Amorites are like the quintessential like Gentiles or something like that? Like it's kind of a per- derogatory. Yeah, yeah, they're not they're not a favored <laughs> group. I always wondered if the Emory students were doing that ironically or if yeah, they just had no know. idea. But yeah, it was kind of funny. Yeah. In that mm-hmm. way, isn't there a website you talk about sometimes that's like bad Hebrew tattoos or something where there, yeah, I'm sh- <laughs> I am sure there is that website. I have not gone looking around in a while, but yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you uh, you probably remember more about these peoples than I do. I can what I can I mean, I think it's really interesting that the story of ba- of Balaam and Balak. Yeah is like the one story that's included in here. And it's kind of included in a fair amount of detail here too, yeah. Yeah, so the the king of Moab sends Balaam, who is a prophet, right? He's a prophet? Yeah, yeah. And tells him to go curse the Israelites. And he tries to, but a blessing comes out of his mouth instead. There's also a talking donkey in that story, but he yeah, doesn't I love come that story. up in this telling of the story. Where is that, like Numbers 22 or somewhere like that? Yes. Yes, this story is Numbers 22 to 24. Sorry, I interrupted you, though. What, what, what are you thinking about it? What I think is so interesting about this story is, again, told from God's perspective, but I refused to listen to Balaam. Like, I guess it hadn't really occurred to me that prophets from other peoples we're speaking directly to God and God got like made a decision each time. Like, yes, yeah. I'm going to do what you're asking for. Or no, yeah. I'm not going to do what you're asking for. This just, I don't know, introduced a whole different like theology to me. But again, putting, putting God very much at the center, like everyone's talking to God. God sees everything going on. And yeah, th- this is sort of like the omnipotent God story. I think that's interesting, Amy, because, you know, the Amorites here are told in the story that they tried to attack you militarily and I gave them into your power. So that's sort of like other people's armies can't get to you because of who God is. Mm -hmm. And then the second part, as you're pointing out, is there's actually not an army. I mean, there's an army in that story, but in this telling of it, it's like the, the religious leaders, the prophets that they call against you, they don't have any power either. And so this sort, of, this sort of interesting way of saying nothing that they've got, whether it's their military apparatus yeah. or their religious apparatus or their whatever, has any power because I'm the one, God's right. the one who decides. God can neutralize any other source of That's power. exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then we get the telling of the crossing over the Jordan and the famous story of Jericho. Then we get a whole list of different people. And I'm assuming that there's this text is sort of using Jericho as a shorthand for talking about like the whole conquest narrative of Joshua. Is is that kind of how you read it? Uh, yeah, I would guess so. The line that stood out to me in this, I mean, so we get the destruction of all these peoples and they're named sort of like quickly in Syriatim, just like all these people who used to be in the land. 
they are no longer in the land. Because in verse 12 at the end, it wasn't your sword or bow that did this. I gave mm-hmm. you the land on which you live. Mm-hmm. And I am just so curious about that. Like the Israelites did fight, right? And there was there were battles of, of various kinds. But there it's being explicitly said like your military power didn't accomplish this. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts about what to do with that? I mean, I think it just I read it as just going back to this like really common refrain that like you are here by the grace of God. Yeah. You did not earn this. You know, you and it goes on further to say like you're enjoying vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Like you didn't all of the things that you're enjoying are because God has given them to you. So don't start thinking that you are independent. Don't start thinking, hey, look what I can do. Don't, you know, like you're not independent. Right. And it might be easy to feel triumphant after winning a military battle against peoples who are much better equipped than you are. Yeah. But I just like over and over and over again, the Tanakh reminds us that you didn't. Yeah, I mean, all all the time in the Torah, God chooses the underdog. Right. You know, in I think in part to emphasize the idea that like there was n- there's no other explanation for how this could have happened, but for the right. fact that God made it happen. And this yeah. is like the another another big version of that. There's no way that the Israelites could have conquered these people, except that God made it so. I get caught in this, as I mean, as you well know, in this conversation of here is God who is blessing the Israelites by way of displacing the people who were then living in the land. And I sit with that tension and, and don't really know what to do with it. Yeah. One of the things that what you're saying does help me to think about is this text is not intended to be some kind of carte blanche of go and conquer land. For sure not. No. It is in this specific instance, I gave you the land and I was yes. the one who won these victories, not you. And so A, don't be full of yourself, but also B, like, don't go and try that again. Right. Right. And that's such a sticky thing because we, <laughs> it, you know, it, it's, this is what humans like to do with the Bible, right? We like to say, we, we like to use it for our own ends, for our own power purposes in the world. And so things that are, that are, this is recounted as a story, as a thing that happened, not as here's a general practice you should adopt or here's something you should replicate in the future. We can still struggle with it as a story of a thing that happened. But yeah, it is, it is definitely not, I mean, just the plain sense of it is not a suggestion that this pattern should continue. The problem with that, of course, is that this text has justified other conquests. And I'm thinking particularly of the European conquest of North America in which, you know, for a lot of the rhetoric of the conquerors, the U.S. was the sort of new promised land or the North America was the new promised land and um, the Native Americans were the new Canaanites and the people coming were the new Israel. And so even though this text itself may have intended exactly not to justify future conquests, 
the way that the story gets retold or reclaimed did exactly that. Mm-hmm. You're right. And so as readers of this text, we have to we have to think about that and we have to raise it up in some way to be able to talk about the fact, just like when I, you know, when we read New Testament texts together that are that have a particular historical context and are used right. in modern contexts in ways that are really harmful to the Jewish community. Yeah. You're always right there to say, like, we have to name this, talk yeah. about what the context was, and also say this has been used in really dangerous ways. Yeah. I think we have the same responsibility here to say, here's what's happening in the story. There's a context. This is not an imperative to go around doing this. And it it has been used exactly that way. Yeah. I go back and forth in this verse 13. I gave you land on which you hadn't toiled and cities you hadn't built. You settled in them and are enjoying mm. produce from vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. Mm. Like I go back and forth between like this is really a great thing if you are an Israelite that you are now enjoying the you are now enjoying the goodness of something over which you did not have to toil. And also related to the conversation we were just having, there are people who did build those things and who now aren't able to enjoy them. How do you process that that line about enjoying the goodness of things that you didn't build? Oh, you really complicated that for me, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, reading it from first just from the perspective of the Israelites. Yes. I almost feel like that could be like this sort of proverbial topic sentence of this whole story. Mm. Like, and it really names a fear that comes up a lot, I think, in Deuteronomy, that once the Israelites, you know, when you're in the desert and God has to provide your food every day and, you know, like you run out of water and God has to provide your water, you have no way to sort of control really very much of anything about your life. When they transition from that way of life to a settled life in the land, where it's not that you can control your crops, because of course there are things you can't control about it, but it is more, you can have more effect on it. You can tip the scales a little bit by by working, you know, by working the land in different ways. And so I think there was a real fear that people would start to think they were, that that they didn't need God, that God wasn't a factor in the mm-hmm. equation and it, everything came from their hard work. Yeah. And so this is even taking it a level like beyond that by saying, I mean, you might work the crops every year, but you didn't do, you didn't even do the initial human work of starting this thing. Like right. you are nothing, you are nothing in this equation. So don't, don't start thinking that you're powerful. You're not yeah. powerful. I really like that, Amy. And, you know, the other way that I've been thinking about it is this is not just a people. I mean, they are a people that's come out of the desert. But before that, they had spent hundreds of years planting and growing and building things for other people. Mm. So they, they didn't have access even to the products of their own labor. And so in some sense, like this, this reads like justice. Like for a long time, you labored for things you could not, you were not allowed to enjoy. Mm -hmm. And now you're able to enjoy things that you didn't have to create. And so like in that sense, this feels like a liberated people is now able to enjoy 
you know, a, an easier life than they have ever experienced. Yeah. At the same time, the flip, the shadow side of that is, of course, that there are other people now who have been displaced. Yes. And I think, I don't think the text is trying to get us to think about that. It's not. And I, it's not. And I wonder as we're talking about this, I wish, I wish, I wish there were a story of those people's too. Yeah. You know, like what, okay, fine. So they're kicked out of this land. And then what happens? Like, what does God do for them? Fine. God has different, let's say God has different covenants with different peoples. Fine. But what, yeah, like they just, they just fall out of the story because this is not a story about them. But yeah, but <laughs> where is, where is their story? Yeah. I mean, in the Joshua story, of course, they're annihilated. They're, they're exterminated. And All of them? That's the way that Joshua tells it. Yeah. Judges seems to come back and sort of say, well, maybe that's not, maybe that's not the real thing that had, had happened. But yeah, the the invocation of the harem and the total destruction of the people of the land within the borders of the land is sort of the way Joshua, the book of Joshua, approaches it. That's very problematic, Bobby. It is, and yeah, I mean this this text is a, is a struggle, and to me, you know, like you, oftentimes you talk about if you see things in the biblical text that you mm-hmm. wish were not in the biblical text, like figure out where those things are in the world and go address that because there's nothing you can do. Right, there's a, right, right. About the biblical text. And so, so one way of reading this text is to say, we have this story in our memory uh, as people of the book. And that story is that as we came out of the land of Egypt and were settled into our own place, that we destroyed other peoples. And then to say, and then we, uh, we especially Christians have duplicated that story over again in the North American conquest and and onward. And so, couldn't we write a new? Couldn't we write a better story the next time, in which we figure out a way to both be liberated and also to value the people who are already in the land? Mm-hmm. To me, that original sort of appeal back way back in Genesis 12, where God says, go live among the Canaanites. And there is no sense in which Abraham is meant to exterminate them, but rather to live alongside them. To me, there's a there's a hopefulness in that text. It's not, it's not the way the biblical story plays out. Yeah. But to say there there was at one point an imagination that people could actually live together. And Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomistic historian just gets nervous about other people. It's yep. like, I'm afraid that you can't follow God if there are other people around. Right. So the best way to do that is to get rid of all the other people who are around. But surely, surely, we could do better than that. Yeah. Sorry, there's my little sermon in the middle. <laughs> I don't know. No, that's, that's, really, that's really helpful. And I think, I think you're right. This might be a point in the story where we, we have to get pressed out of the story, like into, okay, we can't, we can't change what's in here. So what right. can we change? Right. So we have to take it out into the world. Right. I mean, I think of the, when you think of the Bible as memory, I think that's really helpful because we all, every one of us, either individually or in our families or in our communities, all of us have stories that we wish weren't part of our story and memories yeah. that we wish weren't in our memory. And, you know, if you're a person who, who values psychotherapy and those kinds of processing of memories, like, 
pretending like those things didn't happen is almost never the right answer. Mm. Working back through those stories and processing them and thinking about them and then thinking about what choices can I make differently the next time. That's kind of the way, like integrating the, the stories, the memories into our current life in ways that minimizes their destructiveness in the future seems like the best way forward. And I, I think in some ways the Bible is is similar to that. That's really beautiful. I love that. Okay, so picking up then in verse 14. So now revere the Lord, serve him honestly and faithfully. Put aside the gods that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if it seems wrong in your opinion to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Choose the gods whom your ancestors served before the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But my family and I will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, God forbid that we ever leave the Lord to serve other gods. The Lord is our God. He is the one who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. He has done these mighty signs in our sight. He has protected us the whole way we've gone and in all the nations through which we've passed. The Lord has driven out all the nations before us, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. I think it's interesting here that Joshua is acknowledging not only that the people worshipped other gods when they were in Mesopotamia before God had encountered Abraham, but also while they were in Egypt, they seemed to have been worshipping the Egyptian gods. And so, I don't know, it's like there have, all, there have always been options. And it's yeah. sometimes you have chosen some of the other options, but now you, you don't have that choice anymore. Like you either choose the Lord or choose those other gods. I'm fascinated by the fact that that there is, I mean, okay, fine. You don't have the choice of like going back and forth or like doing a little like mix and match thing here. Yeah. But do you think like what would happen if they chose something? (laughs) Is that a a rhetorical question? Is that a rhetorical question? I'm perplexed by the fact that Joshua at the end of this says that, if you are, you know, loath to serve the Lord, then choose who you're going to serve. Yeah. That seem, that's a weird option. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree, but I love it at the same time because I feel like if Joshua just said, look, God did all these things for you and therefore you got to worship God, yeah. <laughs> like, then it takes all the agency out of the human that's response. That's true. The other thing I love about it is it's not it's not if you don't want to serve the Lord, then you don't have to serve the Lord. It's if you don't want to serve the Lord, then who are you going to serve? Mm. And I love the implication. So it's like not serving anybody is not an option. Right. It's you, you are going to be in service to somebody. So who's it going to be? And I really mm. like that way of framing it just for myself because it, it acknowledges that we, we dedicate our lives to something, yes. some belief, some version of God. For them, it was Mesopotamian gods or Egyptian gods or the God of Israel. For us, we could imagine other kinds of things. But that notion that there are other options, like you could legitimately make other choices. Yeah. But for real, you should make this choice. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I right. like that way of setting it up. Yep. Yep. 
No, I like it too. And and that, you know, the beginning of this section, at least in my translation, starts with now, like now, therefore, like this whole history that's been told in 24 has been leading up to you need to make a choice. And like, we've been laying out a case for you about the right answer to this question. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it is, it is. They have to, they have to activate it. They have to, they have to choose it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that gets kind of a different response from the people too. Like I could imagine if, if the, if the pitch were God did all this stuff for you, so you got to do the stuff for God. That just feels a little coercive or something. But when you, when, when he says you can do other things, their response is so emphatic. God forbid that we ever leave the Lord to serve other gods. The yeah. Lord is our God. It's like, no, we're making this choice. We're ready to make this choice. The the very fact of having a choice, I think, helps them really is motivating. Do that. I also love that phrasing. I don't know what it is in your translation in verse six, uh, 16. God forbid that we ever leave the Lord to serve other gods. Mm. I, I just love that they're invoking God to like. <laughs> mine God mine says, far be it for us to forsake the Lord. Uh, That's yeah. less. Yeah. That's less awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Like when I'm when I'm looking at the Hebrew, it does not appear that they are actually invoking God in that. That's too bad. Mm. So then the people give their own sort of telling of the story in verses 17 and following. Like God is the one who brought us and our ancestors from Egypt, mm-hmm. done these mighty things. I don't know. There's just, it just seems like there's something important about the people themselves telling that story instead of just Joshua telling it. Mm-hmm. Do you do anything with that? You know, I was looking at the the way that they, like, it, you know, we've gone from 500 pages of stories condensed into a page. Yeah. And now it's a page condensed into two verses. <laughs> right, yeah. But I think I think they have... They have gotten to the heart of it that God guarded us all along the way that we traveled. I mean, you know, brought us out of the land of Egypt and then guarded us all the way. And it, it seems like that's that's kind of the heart of all the details that have led up to this point. Yeah. I like that their framing of it is about protection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which sounds different to me a little bit than Joshua was telling of it yes. about destruction. Yes. Like they're the same. They're telling the same things, but the emphasis is quite, quite different, it seems. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think, mm, yeah, I have to sit with that a little bit. No, I I really like that. And I, I was going to say that. Maybe it's because they're, you know, God tells everything from God's perspective and they're telling it from their perspective. But I think it's more than that. Yeah. I think it really does change the, like, the tenor of the story. We've been sort of struggling a little bit along the way. I'm just paying attention to now the, like, how do you language what is happening in the first part of this text? Because Joshua said to the people, this is what the Lord says. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I go back and forth. I think maybe you have been going back and forth a little bit too between like God's God's version of the story or what Joshua says is God's version of the story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. 
And so, like, I mean, that's always the case in the biblical text, but here it's actually narrated that way, whereas Joshua says, here's what God says. Mm -hmm. And so if you take it as, like, this is Joshua's version of what he thinks God says and not as direct speech from God, then it's interesting that Joshua, the kind of warrior, tells it in the one way. Uh, like this is this is how he imagines how God would tell the story, yeah. And then the people when they frame it, frame it in terms of protection. And then I don't know that we're wrestling with how the story is told a little bit. We've been wrestling all along the way, and so I mean, one way of sort of processing that is this: this long version that we've gotten from Joshua is not exactly the way God would tell this story, but it's the mm-hmm. way God's military leader chooses mm. to tell the story. And so then now, now you're into the territory of it. It's not only the story that matters, it's who tells the story and whose version of the story and yeah. which one are we going to prioritize. And, you know, I think I love that point, Bobby. And I think you, I think we could push it even further to imagine, you know, I think we've talked about this before. Like let's, let's imagine that there that the that the biblical text. Oh, maybe I shouldn't say imagine. <laughs> I don't. People have different beliefs about the nature of the biblical text and what is right. of divine origin and and who is holding the pen. You know, like <laughs> all of that stuff. We're not going to get into all of that now. But if you are someone who imagines that this text is in some way of the stories are in some way of divine origin, for me at least, it is. It is divine origin translated through the lens of humans into language that humans can understand. Yes. And so yes. it uses metaphors and, exa- you know, like it, it has to use language that humans can understand or there's no point. Yes. And so what, I, what I'm thinking about after your comment is that if you take this whole, like the core of the story of the whole, you know, Torah, the whole Tanakh up to this point, and funnel it all through someone whose whole experience in the world has been about military conquest. And this is, yes. th- you know, this is what, maybe I shouldn't even say military conquest, just military, like yes, defending his people or however you want to think about it. Yes, that is how, that is how you would translate this story in that, through that lens. Yes. I just said what you said in a much longer way, but I really, I, that's really helpful to me, Bobby. That's no, really was, helpful framing for yeah. me. Yeah. No, I love the way, I love the way that you said that. Amy, we said that we were going to read through, I forget how far we said we were going to go, like 27 maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like this conversation has been really rich already mm-hmm. and that maybe this seems like a pretty good place to leave it in verse 18. Does that does that seem right to you? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think so. so. There is more that one could say. There is more. There's always there's more always that one more. could say. Yeah. So if we think about our text as being 24, 1 to 18, and we're thinking about where does this, I mean, we've been talking about this a little bit already, but where does it connect with today and where does it connect with our communities? What do you want to pull out of this text in particular? Oh, gosh. I think this text has me thinking about some of the some of the the points that you pulled out earlier about how about inhabiting the stories of our ancestors and like really holding on to the memories of our people in a really real way and 
and struggling with them. And relatedly, thinking about the commitments of our ancestors and whether and when we want to take them on for ourselves. Mm. I think it's really, you know, I, I see this whole chapter as being sort of a, like yet another covenant ceremony. Like they, <laughs> and they, they happen periodically through the biblical text. Yeah. And, you know, one could ask after a certain point, like, why do we have to keep there? There's already a covenant. We made the covenant <laughs> right. numerous times. The covenant is binding. The people can't get out of the covenant. You know, like, why are we doing it again? But I think as you were pointing out, the fact that the people have to actively affirm that they want to take this on in order for it to have any real power in their life, I think that's still true. And I don't think it's only true, you know, through wide gaps of time. I think it's, you know, even within just community life, it's worth reflecting with some frequency, like are our commitments, I mean, maybe you don't want to reflect on your commitment to God. That would be maybe traumatic for your community. I don't know, maybe not. (laughs) But what are the commitments we have made and are they still really our commitments instead of sort of letting them lose steam over time and just sort of seeing what happens, but to really like actively review and recommit to things. I don't know, that... That could be a, that's what's really sort of rising up for me personally is to think about yeah. how how covenant and commitment lives between generations and between, you know, generations of leadership within communities. And it, yeah, I think it's really interesting how often the biblical text, let's do it again. Let's go through the history again yeah. and let's make the yeah. covenant again. Yeah. I love that, Amy. And the, you know, the language of the text is choose this day whom you will serve. And yeah. it implies that I like it's a fairly short time frame of, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. first of all, there is a choice to be made. And then you're going to be choosing to serve somebody. And what choice are you going to make? And I think that sort of revisiting, like, what, who are we serving today? And what do we care about? And what does our community say about where our priorities and commitments are. Like, I, I think the urgency of that is is really important and it sort of cuts against the complacency that we sometimes find ourselves in individually and communally mm-hmm. about, yeah, of course we know who we're serving, but <laughs> this is like, no, no, for real. Right. Like, you've served all kinds of people in your history. Like, who's it going to be? Like, make a choice. I, I think that's really important. Yeah. What's rising up for you? The other piece that's rising up for me, and it's not unrelated to the to what you've said, but that importance of telling the story. Mm-hmm. In some ways, like I feel like the Jewish tradition, and and I say this as an outsider to that tradition, but has some ways built in of telling the story, the Passover Haggadah, and other times where the story is really told in some detail and some re- like presence as we were talking about earlier, that sometimes the Christian tradition lacks, but that importance of retelling the story, like who are we and where we come from, there is at times in my own tradition a growing kind of uh, lack of awareness or knowledge or understanding about the Bible, or the Bible seems kind of antiquated and outdated, and why should we 
why should we go back and tell that story? Well, I mean, this is why, because that uh, that story is the story of the community, and we need to keep telling the story, and we need to remember the story, and we need to feel connected to those who came before us, and we need to pass the story on to those who come after us. At the same time, that point we were making earlier about it matters who tells the story, and it matters how the story is told, mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. And I think that this pa- this passage brings that really sharply into relief for me, that we need to find ways of telling and retelling the story, but we have choices to make about how we frame the story and what we emphasize in the story and whether we think about conquest or protection and whether we think about you know ourselves as victors or ourselves as people who are called to live among others. Like We have agency and we have choices about how we're going to tell, tell the story of who we are. Mm-hmm. I think acknowledging the way that story has been told in the past is really important. I think taking responsibility for the way we're going to tell that story in the present is also urgently important. And so to think about what it means to be a people that has inherited this tradition and is passing it on in this time, in this place, like how, how does a story get told today? And I, I think that this text invites us to that. Tell the story anew, commit ourselves to that story. That seems like a pretty good takeaway for me. Mm, I love that. That wasn't so bad. You didn't want to read Joshua 24. <laughs> I, I did not, but we did. But we did yeah. it. We did. It was bad sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> this text is such a struggle, but I, you know, I feel like the there is value in the struggle. I feel like yeah. that is true. Yeah. Yeah. I still am going to struggle with this text. And I, oh, yeah. You know, I, no, we didn't. I, yeah. For sure. I wish this text were not part of the biblical text, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, but it is. And, you know, like one of the things I love about the narrative lectionary is that it pulls some of these texts that are really difficult. And it says that, sorry, guys, you got to deal with that. You got to deal with that story, not just having it in the text, but like having it out there in the community. Right. All right, Amy, so next week we're going to be in another kind of difficult text, the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and then Psalm 51. Can I sing the Leonard Cohen song? Hallelujah. I'm going to do that. Yeah. I was going to be like the only Leonard Cohen song I can name is Hallelujah. And that was the right one. That was the right one. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Sadly, the version I know is the version from the movie Shrek. That is, that's sad. I, the version I know, well, the version I know was sung by Jeff Buckley. Yeah. But that's better than Shrek. That might be the Shrek version. I can't remember which one is in Shrek, but anyway, <laughs> I feel. <laughs> anyway. Good times. All right, good times. Amy, it's good to talk to you today. You too. Have a good week. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us.
us next week when we'll be discussing the story of David and Bathsheba as told in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, as well as David's confession in Psalm 51. Until then, keep on digging.